I mean, that's kind of my philosophy for life is I want to be moving or I want to be like horizontal. Yeah. Anything in between is, is like, frankly, unbearable. It really is. I'm Jackie. I'm Hope. Uh, welcome to Avant Gossip. Yeah, I'm glad you could make it. Glad you could stop by and, and check us out. We're just two friends who go into deep, deep, intoxicating rabbit holes about <laughs> things about fashion, design, and art. And then we hang out and talk about it. Yeah, and we just also happen to be urban planners. Yeah, I was thinking we probably should incorporate that into our brand at some point. Yeah, and because like this one's about urban planning, this episode, and it's not, I mean, I guess by accident, it's actually pretty boring when it's a job, but by accident, it is very interesting. Right. It, it connects to a lot of interesting <laughs> things because it's it's the fa- fabric of our cities. Avant Gossip is a brand new podcast. We used to be a fascism podcast and... As we, you know, hashtag rebuild, it's super helpful if you give us five stars. There's really no reason not to. Please do. And, you know, even if you hate us, just write a negative review, but like give us five stars. Mm-hmm. You can say, you fucking suck. Eat my booty, um, which actually is a good thing. I don't know why you would say that. But anyways. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of like, <laughs> yeah. kind of just like queer phobic of you. <laughs> yeah, it's an invitation. And then but just give us five stars, you know, even if you think we're worth three stars, which is even more hurtful than a one star, quite honestly. But Definitely. Because it's yeah, yeah, it's we like don't have a critique. To right, yeah. <laughs> right. One star is like, oh, you're mad. Yeah, you don't like our opinions. But yeah. three stars like, yeah, I just I think you're kind of flailing. Today, what are we talking about? It's housing dreams. Mm. Before we get into that, I think we should do our check-in. What's trending with you? So for this week, I was thinking I wanted to do something that didn't sound really dramatic. So what's (laughs) trending for me is... Because last week was what? I just feel like the past few weeks, I've just been like, crying is trending with me. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's still true. Trending with me is concerts. I've gone to not but one, but two concerts in the last two weeks I've had like an evolving relationship with concerts because I found that the less committed I am to getting absolutely wasted ass drunk it's harder to exist at a concert yeah and it becomes more apparent like how annoying it is when people are like moving in front of you behind you past you constantly yeah I hate standing I hate standing unless I I want to be sitting which is a lame concert all at the same time so I don't want to you know it's either you're dancing fully in movement or and you know all those lyrics to the song or I'm sitting and gracefully watching exactly and I've been realizing that I like I really disassociate at concerts because it's also like it's 
you can't manage people's emotions. You can't make sure other people are having a good time, which like my Libra moon really wants to do. And because like, it's just so hard to talk and in those situations. But I, so I went to one concert. It was um, like a funk band and it Ew. was digging dirt. Okay. It was, uh, I'm very judgmental of, of band names. Yeah. It's, and it was like a, the scene was very California. So it was a cool vibe. It was like people were really into the band. They And it was like, I think the band's from Humboldt and okay. I'm, I'm like, what? So many opinions. I, I stayed and worked in Humboldt for quite some time. Right. FB, FYI. And FBI. they are <laughs> FBI. Oops. <laughs> That's a slip. That's a Bordeaux slip. Um, anyways, uh, and the talent there was subpar and yet the people would act like they were above average. Um, and they were kind of like goofy about it. Cause they also knew like they weren't like known to, they're all stoners. Literally they're mm. all stoners. So they don't like show up to practice. They don't really have any focus and it bothers me because you can see it in their performance style this is coming from somebody that's seen that's from nashville that has a certain level of expectation right um so maybe it's a little bit higher than others but uh yeah they just always like i was just like the reaction to them was always more than what they really were to me anyways that's yeah my, that's my opinion of all humboldt bands yeah uh, this band was like i would say like technically pretty good the lead singer was you know we were kind of like brian and i being like was that appropriation it was very like james brown that's yeah that's very and at the same time which i was like that feels weird at the same time if my voice was capable of doing that it would be very tempting to just always be doing that yeah um also he was doing a lot of shout outs to his wife and like had us take a like a video of us being like thanks mom because he sends a, a thank you to his mom every year on his birthday it was his birthday i was trying not to be judgmental but obviously I mean, you're failed. allowed to be with those things. Well, it was like my my sister who just got married was like they were going to go on like a mini honeymoon, but they decided not to for various reasons. And she said, I'd like to go out dancing. Like mm-hmm. I'd like to go out and see music. And so Brian researched a bunch of shows and he sent us three options. And the music that I think we mostly all agreed was the best was at Numo's. And Numo sucks as a venue. It's yeah. just like not fun vibes. It's like whatever. So this is how we ended up at this one. Anyway. At one point, this like little blonde boy kept keeps like looking behind himself at me. That's where I was. And then I was like, <laughs> is something wrong. wrong? And he's like, you spilled on me. And I was like, no, you actually elbowed my cup because he was dancing and he elbowed my cup. Yeah, and why he, does he give he a He was shit? just like looking like just looked so offended and scandalized by it. And I'm like, I was like, you didn't get see what happened. I did. I wasn't drunk enough for the situation is what I'm saying. That's annoying. What do you expect? You're going to get spilled on if you're dancing. Yeah. I was like, watch those elbows. Then I went to a show this past week that was someone we went to school with. But then me and the two people I was trying to mobilize with were being very indecisive and no one had had dinner and Oh, no. It was like... So people get more indecisive and angrier about it. We were like, should we eat leftover pizza? And then obviously we have to put it in the oven because this is Detroit style. (laughs) You can't be microwaving Detroit style pizza. Uh, What's Detroit style? It's People mostly describe it as rectangular, which I feel like is not a comprehensive description. But it's like a little... It's like almost like Pizza Hut crust, like cornmeal on the bottom, a little thicker. It's not like... It's not floppy. Okay. Almost like home style because it has like little edges oh, okay very good and we went to moto which is like i got it like blew up and you had it but for a while you had to like reserve months in advance it was like some 
person who just started cooking pizza and it got really crazy over the pandemic. It was in West Seattle. And then some Seattle rich person was like, here you go. And now they have a bunch of different locations. Anyway, so for them. Yeah, we crisped that pizza up uh, and then we got we missed the entire show, like the entire person we were going to see Uh because they were the opener. I heard they were very good. And then we had a lovely sitting down while music played in the background experience. Me and Matt argued about various things while everyone else like was watching us do it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And then the last band was like really good. And I love Connor Byrne because it's never that crowded. You yeah. can actually dance and move. And it's yeah. like, they were also just like, I don't know, something about the lead, like pianist. It was a, someone was on piano and he was like the person, the songwriter, whatever. And then playing bass was someone Kasha knows from high school. Classic. She was just like, looked like she was having an amazing time up there. Mm-hmm. And then drums. Anyway, it was really good. And I'm like, okay, it's restored my faith in concerts. I just want the option to sit. I want room to dance. Ideally, I know multiple people in the band. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that does help. It really does. Your like enthusiasm is way higher for it. Yeah. Long-winded way of saying, evolving relationship with concerts. So trending with you is not going to concerts and what else? What's trending with me is, oh my God, what is, I wrote it down and now again, hold on. Why suddenly I'm blank? Losing shit. Wow, I lost my thought. That's how much wow, is trending with that me. Is, yeah, just full on. Um, yeah, so I went to a Christmas party last Saturday. I left my purse there because I was ready to go, you know, and I said, I'll get it eventually. I'll need it this week. And then, I mean, like, I remembered while we were driving home and I was like, I'm not going to, they're pretty far away. So I was like, I'm not going to drive back until I have to. So I lost that. And then I went. Like to, with your wallet and everything? Yeah. Oh, with, my God. Listen, I don't have any money to spend. So I was like, you're like, this is my savings plan. <laughs> it was fine. They were, it was with people that I love and trust. So it was not a big deal. And then I went out dancing, line dancing for we have now a third, an extra Thursday. We've been trying out for like more intermediate dancers, like line dancers. And I went, are you intermediate now? I mean, I don't think it's a real thing. Intermediate. See, when it comes to line dancing, you know, I think. It's just follow the people and then try it. Like, so yes, mm-hmm. I would say so. Nice. I kind of questioned that. And my friends were like, yeah, you are. And I was like, that's you need. And, well, yeah. And it's also like line dancing is so easy. And the end of the day. It and also doesn't like affect anyone else's experience if you're bad. It's not exactly. like you're performing. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just like the harder, the, the way it gets harder is when there's more steps to memorize. And that's it. Not the level of difficulty of the steps itself. You know, you can just like act like you know what you're doing. Anyways, not really be doing it. But I went and then I thought I left my, my Orca card, which is our Metro card. And I was like, Oh, my God, I texted my friend who was supposed to be there. And, and they were like, I didn't see it. And then it was in a secret pocket of my fucking coat. So I was like, Oh, my God, Jackie, get it together. Oh, my God. And I was just like panicking on the Metro or the link light rail because for those who don't know, they like sometimes people get on there and they check your stuff and some security came on there, um, which I hate. And they started coming towards us and then they decided to go to the other side of the mm-hmm. thing, Majiki. Mm-hmm. And if they would have come up to me, I would have been like, I don't have it. But then I would have been like, why are you doing this? Like, yeah. what do you think the point of this? Because Rye told me they, they recently did this. Like they were like. Uh, they had their stuff like they had their orca card but like started being like this is stupid you know this right like this feels like classes and the person was like like trying to talk down a shooter or something (laughs) 
you don't have to do this. <laughs> yeah. And the person was young was like, yeah, I totally am on your side. I mean, they just needed a job. Like that's right, the thing about right. most people. They're not like, they don't actually give a fuck except for this older dude. She said like the supervisor dude was definitely giving a fuck. And I was like, that's because that's his only, that's his life now, you right, know? Right. And then the third thing that I lost was my car. <gasps> what? I lost my car. I went to get my hair done at Coven Salon for the first time. Oh, nice. Who'd you see? Linda. Lydia. Lydia. Did you like her? She was all right. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I just need somebody from the South to do my hair. I think my is my expectation every time. I'm like, I want big. I want curly. My best haircuts have always been in Nashville, like with like Southern ass ladies. I don't know that are sorority girls. Nice. <laughs> I can't explain it. Like nice. they're basic as fuck. Yeah, they don't do Dolly Parton in Seattle. Yeah. I, like it was the first time being like going there and like. It was raining. And this is not the first time I've lost my car in the rain. I think I just can't see in the rain. My car changes in the rain. I mm. swear to God. Mm. Like maybe because it never gets a bath and like suddenly it's shiny and clean. And I'm like, that You're can't like, be mine. Yeah. You don't look inside and see all the stuff in there. And yeah, it's exactly. I'm like, no, that's not my car. It's too nice. But I lost it. But I, I and I walked up and down the street <sighs> after getting on my appointment for like 30 minutes. Oh, my God. And up and in down the, Madison. Yeah. Which is just horrible right now. And it was like in the rain, too. And I didn't bring my umbrella because I thought it was, it was literally a two minute walk from my car to whatever the salon. So I thought I didn't need my jacket. And I was like, OK. And then when I was like standing in the rain for 30 minutes, I was like, fuck it. So I called Lyft and then I got home and I was like, there's no way anybody stole that car because who would? And I asked the Uber and they're like, oh, no one steals Subaru Outbacks. And I was like, okay, good to know. Also, like, also, it's just like not a car to steal. It's like, I think it's harder to steal one, but two, it's like, why? And then second off, I like no one calls like people don't just pay for people to come pick up cars like uh, what's like that called? Towing. towing. Like people aren't going to they might call a tow. They might threaten the tow, but it's not actually going to happen. Like unless it's like a sign there and it's like a company that's going to pay for it like it's like yeah why would they company. tell you if you were in a legal parking spot yeah exactly well i thought maybe i wasn't you're I like, yeah you're I, questioning i always do that this is again i've called hope being like i lost my car before right and then it, i didn't lose my car so this again this is the second time this is why i'm concerned uh, i like but the way you talk about it it's like people don't yeah you mean you couldn't find your car i couldn't find it but i was like I obviously was like, this has to be my stupidity. Mm. It has to be. Mm. So I called Rye and I was like, hopefully, because other options don't seem valuable, which is, or what am I say, valid. But yeah. Um, And the fact that no one was going to tow my car. It seems like not a thing that people would want to do. And then like, no one's going to steal the car. So it had to, I literally had to be me. So I called Rye, our friend, and I was like, can you pick me up and drive me around? And they were like, yeah, I can at like four. So half the day I was just like, well, my car's gone. And then we got there and we finally found it. Oh, my God. After going like up and down all these streets. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, that's rough. Yeah, I'm an idiot. I don't know how I had walked past it. Like when multiple you get times. in that mode, because I've been in that mode with cars and with so many things. You're like you're in fight or flight mode. Or yeah. Whatever, and you just you're not thinking clearly at that point, which is like sad because it's when you need, need to be well yeah. yeah i obviously don't trust myself when plus you were coming out of a haircut and that just fucks with your head <laughs> thank you for giving me all these foundations honestly i think it's ra- like don't trust me to park a car in a new place when there's rain 
Mm. I will lose that car. For some reason, suddenly everything becomes invisible to me. Mm. Yeah. So that's the second lesson. So it's probably going to happen a third time. Who knows? But wow. Anyways, let's get on to our subject. Yeah. Transition music. Yeah, like I said earlier, um, speaking of losing things, we've lost the American dream, maybe some would say. Whoa, we, we love that. We love a transition. <laughs> um, and uh, I picked out three topics to kind of like focus on. Broader concept is housing dreams. But in this episode, we're taking a look at industrial utopias, taxes that could give relief to affordable housing, and direct action routes, aka squatting. Which I'm pro squatting, and I just want to put that out there before anybody has questions if it, if I am or not. And I think the media has made it seem like people are squatting in a way that's like, how dare they? And mm. it's like, it's actually based off of a lot of activism. We should, you know, people need housing, and we shouldn't discourage people for like trying their best to find it. Right, and it's like. The problem is a housing stock lying dormant, you know, like empty homes. It's exactly. like, yeah. Yeah, take it. Okay, so my first thing that I wanted to talk about is like, we went to the Danny Blaine. If you haven't checked out Hope's awesome TikTok about Danny Blaine, you should. But it gives you kind of a debrief of what's going on. And there was a public meeting about this park that we went to, to you know, to stand with Denny Blaine, the park, which is a nudist gay beach, essentially. And, and they were going to put a playground there which would basically like change the way the beach could be used and it would it would be like harmful to the queer community in Seattle. Yeah, like especially I mean yeah, it's like a private anonymous donor yada yada. Yeah. Yeah, watch the TikTok. Right. The one of the commenters like uh, commenters, one of the people that was talking, uh we had public comments that were available and people really gave these amazing like it was really all of it was touching most of it was touching. There's like two people that kind of annoyed me, but like mm. just really touching of the heart. But one of the concepts they said was like the union said this phrase that union unions deserve bread, but they also deserve roses. And they were like, Denny Blaine is our rose. And I've been like really kind of like contemplating of how like people not only deserve their basic needs to be met, they also deserve luxury in some capacity. Like they need the beauty of life. Also, it does, that doesn't like mean just because you're poor that you only deserve like shitty things like. yeah it's like you can really apply it in so many ways it like makes me think of some of some people i've known who've worked with populations who are struggling and they you know you hear people critiquing saying like oh they use their welfare check or they're like yeah. money from the government to buy an xbox and it's like roses dude yeah like you like they need fun stuff too like yeah. they want all the same shit you do but one of the things that i was thinking about was like the socialist housing dream like in the housing systems and how affordable housing looks like it's like a lot of times it's bare bones bare needs and like it isn't given this whole like utopia version of that and 
I studied uh, a little bit abroad of like urban space and like versions of that. And we, I went to France and there was this place in Lyon, France um, that we visited. And it was done by this architect called Tony Garnier in a French way. Garnier? Maybe. You know, like gar- is it spelled like Garnier Fructis? It is. So it's G-A-R-N-I-E-R. Yeah, Garnier. But good thing his first name's Tony. Yeah. Well, <laughs> here, here forth be referred to as Tony. Okay. So apparently Tony is this really known architect apparently because my professor knew him i mean i guess my professor is an art history person so that makes sense but i don't know knew them personally no no he he was like famous in the turn of the century okay but i mean he's well known enough to have a unesco's and like um he was like the city architect one of his buildings was is a unesco heritage site yeah a couple of them i think and the director of this museum that we visited which is like an open air museum even went as far to say that like tony grin gar garnier 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 is uh to leon uh, leon which is where i was in france as Gaudi is to barcelona Mm. which i was like "Mm." Hmm. because it's not like his architecture is like crazy like gaudy at all it's like pretty pretty typical of that time period he wasn't like cutting edge it was his more his social political standings Mm. and how he tried to build affordable housing Mm. yeah so he was a socialist architect and a leo french and so he was born in france yeah he was born in leon okay this is like you know that's his hometown and he really gave a shit about it he was son of canuts canuts which again this is french you guys Forgive me, mm-hmm. which means he, uh, his family, his mom and dad were workers in the silk industry. Also, I don't want to get too much in a tangent because I, I want to really badly because going to France, I learned all this stuff like the silk industry was a big part of Leon um, and they had a lot of infrastructure that was built around like silk workers to like make sure it was as pro- like um productive as possible Mm. and the way they've literally built the way buildings were built and they still stand today so but they they, uh it doesn't it changed and it changed during his period and his youth it coincided with a crisis in the textile industry there was a lot of riots there was a lot of things going on and with these economic changes came a lot of lung illnesses a lot of like lung illnesses came during that time aka typhoid i guess is what he this article was referencing to yeah and he lost his mom and his two aunts so a lot of death so moving forward from that like sanitation and hygiene were a big part of his like the way he designed yeah so there you go that's tony for you nice okay Uh, so and then he designed he designed homes he designed buildings well well first he wrote a book that got a lot of acclaim called the industrial city and it was his version of a utopia okay as a young architect he like People still read it today. It's pretty. God, it's, it's like my my boss is keeping like we want you to get out there. We want you to like you know give talks at things like. And I'm like about what? I'm I'm new, but apparently <laughs> fucking Tony, hot off the press, straight out of school, writes a book. I mean, yeah, 1917. He wrote this book. Actually, I think he was still. I think he was a not first thing. Mm-hmm. I think uh, he'd only done a couple. It's like when you work for like 70 years this would be considered the early part of your career 10 yeah year, 10 years in yeah it's called the cité industrielle mm. is what the book is called the Fuck. Cité industrielle. 
And I definitely fucked that up too. It was written in 1917. It was situated on a plateau in the southeast of France. Okay, imagine. Okay, southeast of France. I've never been there. I don't think. I don't even know where Leon is. It's the second largest city. I have people ask me where things are in Seattle, and I'm like, I don't know. They're like, is it north of this? And I'm like, maybe. <laughs> Why are you? Are you think I'm looking at the map consistently where I'm going? I'm not. Mm. I can't tell you exactly where it is. So, so I don't know where Leon was, but I was there for a, like six weeks. And this is in the southeast of France with hills and a lake to the north and a river and valley to the south. And I'm like, OK, well, it seems like I don't know. Maybe this industrial city might not have all those things. Uh, what if like we have a situation where like, I don't know, there's a desert, but whatever. He's not thinking that far. He was like first first like thing you you need to do in order to make this city is like live in this very specific yeah geographic context <laughs> exactly the plan takes into consideration all the as- aspects necessary to running a socialist city what are those aspects what do you think those aspects would be to running a socialist city yeah transport public transportation people Definitely. need to be able to get around people Check. need access to like nature though they weren't thinking about it as much then oh they definitely they were because after yeah mid mid 19th century yeah access to that to like clean air they need you know just like public facilities they need a daycare they need a library you're killing it i yeah. mean i mean obvious it's almost like we do this for a living <laughs> i mean it's also just common sense like what things do people need and these are like and like deserve um, oh my god, last night I watched until I fell asleep the um documentary about rural libraries. Mm. It was very good. It's like all they were all in New Mexico mm. and it's just like these are all like unincorporated towns so they don't get library money from mm. the cities cuz there's no city. And so the libraries were like a lot of them were like grassroots and it was really really moving. I mean, yeah, that's It moved me to sleep, I guess, but <laughs> <laughs> you were touched to the point of yeah, you're like, ooh, yeah, comfy. Finally, I can sleep knowing this exists in the world. <laughs> exactly. Um, but one thing that's big part of like any kind of city is zoning. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it is an important aspect of how we develop towns. I think it is it should be considered land use is a valuable tool in our tool set of like how to give equitable living and healthy living to all. But do we use it like that? Absolutely not. So, so for people who don't know, could you explain like how land use could be used like to create equity in a city? I mean, in the way that he does it, it's like the zones are functioning as like agriculture. So there's an agriculture part of land. And then there's an industrial part of landscape. And then there's the residential, which we have too, by the way. But it's the way to make sure there's a healthy, like there's an area of Mm -hmm. health. Mm -hmm. Like industry isn't within the residential area, Mm -hmm. obviously, right? And agriculture isn't within the industrial area, you know? So did that come about? I guess it had to have been a fairly recent thing because cities were a fairly recent thing. And like like the mid-1800s was all about like, oh, shit, the cities are so like stinky and our lungs are fucked. Uh So like now we need to have parks. Like it feels like zoning must have been like a relatively new thing. I think that was like part of it. Yeah, like planning was a whole new thing because like industry was a new thing, right? Mm -hmm. So that was why this was kind of groundbreaking at its time. I mean, he also considered public as a zone which we do too and like having park areas having the libraries having access to all these like recreational but also like beneficial things to humanity that we need and that was considered part of the zoning which yeah we have in the u.s i I don't think that became that like was a again a new idea in europe that wasn't really a concept until later i mean they had parks ish 
They had public areas, plazas. They had like, you know, libraries and stuff. But was it like due to zoning at that time? No. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, so this is all linked. All these zones are linked by location and circulation patterns, both vehicle, vehicular, and pedestrian, like you were saying. Okay, so these, uh, notice that it doesn't have anything about cars. It's mostly, it's all like public transit. By the way, I mean, France didn't really have cars at the turn of the century. It's like a U.S. thing that was becoming a big thing. But I really think the cars are so detrimental to cities that they've like ruined the concept of cities. And yeah. Yeah. That's... There's a lot of like meme accounts that'll like show you really depressing before and afters of like. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much space dedicated to cars. It's kind of unbelievable it's so unbelievable yeah parking roads um the public zone uh is set on a plateau much in the manner of hellenistic acropolis do you know what that looks like hellenistic acropolis i don't know that was a reference and i thought maybe you would know no i don't it sounds vaguely familiar it's like greek i'm assuming oh and hellenistic is like helen uh-huh Mystic. <laughs> um, okay, writer or listener, uh, write in about it and tell us what you think. It's we don't have an email address. Well, podcast, DM but... us on Instagram yeah. or TikTok. Right. And the public zone is composed of the governmental buildings, museums, exhibition halls, and large structures for sports and theater. Yay. Perfect. Residential areas are later located to take best advantage of the sun and the wind aka windows facing south that was a big part of his thing and the industrial district is accessible to natural power sources and transportation mm. medical practice at the time was mostly almost totally without tools and treatments that we have now but one of the things that they thought works and does work is like you know air and sunshine so he had like more of like an open hospital concept that was like pavilion based mm giving like patients close relationships to amenities, but also feeling very relaxed in the setting. A health center and a park are located on the heights north of the city and the cemetery to the southwest. Uh, I, it's like, I do want to like read up on these since like we studied landscape architecture, not art, uh, not urban planning. So I haven't done all of this background research, but it also yeah. sounds a little daunting. I'm, I'm loving that I'm hearing the hits. I don't know if we would have got this in school because this is a, this is very European too. Mm. But I mean, a lot of like urban planning came from Europe during this time too. So yeah, like 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 Cabousier is like yeah, which we learned about him. But all we need to know in the U.S. is Robert Moses, right? And what is that book, The Power Broker? Do you know how many men have asked me if I've read The Power Broker? A lot, too, at least. <laughs> and I think it's a way for them to brag about how big it is because it's like unnecessarily large. It starts in prehistory. Oh, my God. And that's when I say I, that men have gone too far. We need to stop them. We love when a book doesn't just start with when white people got someplace, but also you know this some books are too big yeah and i'm like oh your brain's so big i'm like no also like anyways i could go on and on about the power broker and how it's like a tool to be like i know more than you i'm a little triggered from it's it it's in the name people <laughs> technical innovations were incorporated into the architect architectural uh, specifications that he made and this man loves some reinforced concrete this was like a big thing at the turn of the century too like concrete in the reinforced way was brand fucking new mm, yeah mm -hmm. and that's when buildings were starting to be built as con like concrete buildings were starting to be built and that was really interesting thing because concrete was sort of like of the people in that like you could build a house it's like kind of easy to 
build with concrete because you just fucking pour it and it doesn't take like the expertise that like wood houses do I guess yeah no exactly and it's affordable Mm. and that was a big thing so he uses reinforced concrete in like all his projects he's like so about it Mm. so which is comes with pros and cons like concrete does eventually crack and they're you do have to like keep up with it so it's not like a solution for all hot take concrete isn't it ain't all it's cracked up to be (laughs) um his first assignment of becoming an architect architect was constructing a municipal dairy which i didn't even know municipals had their own dairy plants but i guess they do wow and he was recommended by a friend uh which was the mayor who was considered a this is why you got to know the people. Do you got to get these kind of jobs? Like he ended up hiring him as the mayor ended up hiring him as the city architect. But this mayor, Edward Henrot, Henrot, H E R R I O N T, H E French. Okay, let's remember. Oh, yeah. Edretta, Edretta. I'm not saying, I'm never going to get it right. Yeah, we can't be on Duolingo for every one of these episodes. We can't. And then he's a radical socialist as well. So he's all about, you know, making equitable housing um and great time for him to be thinking about that because he really had the opportunity to like really think about that and tony Grin- uh, garnier was like you know also a socialist they didn't agree on everything but they did agree on like you know utopia are they in the same place at the same time are yes. they actually working together okay he's he's uh, the mayor of Lyon. And oh, Henry's the mayor. Yeah, that's no, not his name. Ed- Edward. No one's named Henry. <laughs> no one's named Henry. It's but it's like his last name is Harriet right, right. or something. Yeah. Um, but his first name is like Edward or Edard or whatever. But it's Edward translation for you like you know Americans if that was his name. And another famous one that he did is in the slaughterhouse, which is now a concert hall called Ale Ale Tony Gania, which I think is really weird to have a concert hall in a former slaughterhouse. But hey. That's pretty punk rock. And he did over 80 projects in the city. The project that I visited was the city of Tony Garnia, which is a neighborhood in Estas Unis, Unis, which I think means United States. I don't know what's going on with that. And the housing estate was predicted to have 1,500 apartments with 3,000 residents. And again, this is the early 20th century. He had... You know, 1500 residences or 1500 units. Yeah. This is an apartment, like a big apartment. Yeah. There was like various sizings, like one, two, three, four bedrooms uh-huh. you know, of choosing. But they would have like, you know, everything was kind of set in the way that you could copy paste, you know. Um, but yeah, they it was over 1500 apartments and he was hired to do it. So it was the whole. So he made the social housing with all the latest comforts. Every apartment had running water. Every apartment had gas and a toilet. Again, this is like between like late 1910s and up to 1933. And I just want you guys to get an idea of what that really means. In Nashville, I think it was like less than 50% of the population of the residents of housing had running water and even like a toilet at that time by the 50s, even up to the 60s. I think it was still like 40% of residents without running water Mm. and a toilet so like just to give you an idea of how like fresh and new this is that's pretty you know cutting edge at that time and also at the same time post-world war one vienna was also producing like a ton of socialist housing which Mm -hmm. i think is interesting um yeah yeah. 
I mean, because they cared about their fucking people. And because the people wanted it. Like people were, it was like there was pressure, there was political pressure to deliver it. And for sure. Each building, like I said, was standardized and kind of organized in like islands served by networks of streets and courtyards. There are roads now that with cars that you could go through, but like it's all kind of like connected to each other. So like if you live there, it's like a tight knit community pretty you're gonna see each other in the courtyard and it's all uh he believed that everyone should have a view to the courtyard thought greenery to be a good part of like health and especially like seeing it visually would be a good part of health so that was kind of his design i remember explicitly like they had these out like windows so you could like peer over into the courtyard and it stacked up to like six to eight levels but all could see that into a courtyard at some point with trees and stuff this was close to his ideal city when he built it however it didn't include all the public amenities like a pool or a library so mm, no pool docks five dock, docking him five points for that exactly i was wondering though like what was a pool in 19 like 20 did they have the chemical things that we had because I feel like oh. it takes a lot of chemistry to do. Well, definitely not. But I mean, there's been bathhouses for a long time. Very true. And I guess it's just plumbing. Plumbing. Yeah. I mean, throw some salt in there. Who knows? I, it's something my dad would probably be really freaked out thinking about all the <laughs> all the little germies in there. Yeah. But OK, so let's speed up to 1983. <clears throat> this place, uh, Estenas Yunus uh, housing, is the people there are just like not living their best living situation. Um, but they've been living there for generations. Like, at this point, it was, like, what, two, the second generation, third generation of people that have been living. Like, this was a tight-knit, working-class, like, village. Because also, side note, this was Lyon. This was built, like, far from the city of Lyon. So it was kind of isolated from the rest of Lyon. Even though it was in the city-bound, like, lines, it was not accessible to get into the city. So they kind of, like, relied on each other. So they all like a lot of these people not only grew up there generationally going to working to the nearby plants, but also like were proud of their little village that they had. Hmm. But so 1983, they decided to take their things into their own hands and they formed a nonprofit called Tenants Committee to campaign and negotiate for large scale improvements because they cared. They were like, they were hearing things about it being demoed and they were like, absolutely not. This is meaningful their, to us. Their house was going to get demoed? Yeah, because it was just like kind of dilapidated like there hasn't been a lot of good upkeep because it was public housing and they were still living there yes yeah i mean that makes sense that they'd be a little peak. i mean again generational too like yeah. at this point like, like their their parents grew up there like they were born in this you know a lot of them it reminds me of a study that was done by a professor who i won't name because uh we don't really like her oh yeah but lynn i'll just say it there was uh, a study where they were gonna get rid of like some public housing or some kind of housing that was serving like a low-income community and like they were able to point to all these things these issues these like physical issues with the property and it's like yeah you can look at a thing like that and be like it's bad for xyz reason it's unsafe no one should live here but then when they actually like interviewed people and did qualitative research people were like this is a network of of community I remember this, we yeah. help each other like you know this is like a very important yeah community system just because it's dilapidated doesn't mean we don't care mm -hmm. it's just like we don't have the funny like yeah that's the thing about like when like low-income areas it's like there's a tight-knit usually network due to survival and all we see is like blight and like awfulness I don't know it's like very yeah interesting versus like my neighborhood which is up upkeep and i don't know i hate all my neighbors and i don't want them to talk to me yeah. anyways 
Um, over the course of t- a dozen years, 49 buildings um, and 1,568 flats were renovated hmm. due to their campaigning and hmm. negotiating. And it wasn't like an easy fee. I mean, I'm kind of skipping over all this stuff, but like... Right. I'm sure it was a struggle. They, were, they didn't just ask for it and then get it. Yeah. They had bathrooms and elevators that were added because they didn't have elevators. And there was a lot of people that were elderly at this mm. point. They weren't like, you know, fresh and young. And they had wheelchairs that they had to get in and out of. And they would have to go up and down stairs. It was an ADA approved mm-hmm. let's just say that they updated the gardens you know given the public spaces uh more of a freshened up look doors and windows were replaced some of the exterior was kind of refreshed um this is all of like what residents had asked for and what they had requested and it was all during the time that tony grenier um urban museum the open air museum that i visited was created and formed Ooh. and it's the public housing people that really wanted like to bring art into their um, area. Like this was like their thing. They were not only campaigning for it to be an amazing update or just like any kind of As update. Like a, they didn't want just the necessary updates. They, they wanted, wanted their rows. They wanted, yeah, their bread was elevators. Their yeah. rows was art. Yeah, exactly. This is again, a working class initiative that started within their neighborhood. And I think that says a lot. I really, really want people to understand that. Like it's just normal people mm-hmm. wanting some something beautiful (laughs) i've been thinking about that lately because i feel like sometimes people think they have to like gain a lot of skills and connections in order to like move the needle right but it's literally just the power of people like you don't have to be a special person you just have to be connected to other you just have to be a group of people this is like a linking of artifacts of urban art with a cultural project essentially and they became very active in the programming and implementing operation for improving this neighborhood but also like overseeing what was being done they hired this group of artists and architects called city creation which was all based in they were all based in leon and they were really kind of getting into wanting to do big scale murals in the city anyways and like they were really inspired by Diego Rivera's work which was like making these political statements through these large uh, city murals and that's kind of what they had in mind yeah so that's what they did when I went it had a little history of Tony Grenier himself like a murals beautifully done and but they had hired I think like 12 to 13 artists all over the world to make their own version of Utopia so all the murals were different versions of the artist interpretation of what utopia looks Mm. like what does utopia look like for you honestly it's just like crazy colors you know everybody's growing their own food but also sharing and no cars Mm. definitely a library somewhere Mm -hmm. and a space to like do weird art that's it i love that i mean that's how i said what about you yeah i feel like that all of that yeah it's like a lot of people sharing food and do and like making things together and like right yeah uh not having toxic power structures like expression of fluid expression of gender and like celebration of i feel like femininity has to be central in it because it's you know uh that's sort of yeah beauty and kind of the best that's the best, kind of the best stuff yeah for sure. Okay, I think we should take a certified uh, snack break. I'm getting a little, a little hungry. Ooh, I would love that. And I might put on my coat because I'm chilly. Okay, nips not, not, are they still hard? They're not even hard, actually. It's, it's actually cold in my bones, <laughs> if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. Screen falling off the 
Pecan praline, avocado toast, tea. I feel refreshed. Mm-hmm. Listen, I'm really good at snacking. Certified. Certified snacker. If I could just snack all day. I can't believe you called Virgos unpalatable to the point of like not being able to be commercialized. <laughs> <laughs> no one knows because we weren't recording. So that sounded like I actually came up <laughs> said that those words exactly. This was... Yeah, for a TikTok that's really hard to explain that we were recording earlier, but I didn't think that part. I don't think anybody's unpalatable enough to be. I think yeah. everything can be commercialized. I think everything can be monetized. Literally everything. Literally everything. Okay, so we just follow. We just finished up about how the people of Leon was. It was made a socialist city by Tony Grenier's design or Garnier. And the people in the 80s and 90s that had lived there generationally also wanted some beauty and they added big time, like huge murals. And that's where we landed. Okay, for now, I'm going to go on to action and like how people have in the US particularly, we're moving away from France. We're going back to our homeland, unfortunately. In um, is this a three? Is this a three things? Mm-hmm. So what? What's what thing are we on? We, this is the second part when we're talking about like how people have done action. Okay, action towards housing dreams versus land use planning, right? Well, yeah, the original. I mean, I guess I just called it a utopian. Got it. Housing. Got it. And then this is collective action. This is collective action for a a house, the ultimate dream mm-hmm. of like living within a space with walls and a ceiling um was that for all i need all i need for walls and it's crazy that we created a thing called the american dream and the american dream was just like having a home owning a house literally that's it working hard enough that you deserve a place to live that like the american oh god i know it's really sad it's really grim yeah so in seattle we're coming back to us I wanted to make it about us. In Seattle, I thought it was cool because I was like, what has Seattle done? We do have some kind of history of activism here. Like, there is a history of punks here. We had a rave scene here. Like, Seattle comes... Grunge. We had grunge. I mean, like, Seattle is is a more quiet revolution. It's not like Oakland, which we'll see later, which I feel like there's, like, a known history of activism that's a lot louder and a lot prouder and seattle does have those roots but it's like not nearly as visible it is quieter that's for sure it's like 
It's just Seattle, Seattleites. Yeah, so Seattleites. So meek, polite, but on, but not always. Anyways, in 1988, Operation Homestead in Seattle began occupying buildings and negotiating their sale to nonprofit low-income housing organization. So what I mean by occupying housing, they would go into dilapidated areas that was like could be housing and they would just literally squat there. And it was like an intent to make awareness of like how many people were homeless and how many places were could be lived in. Mm -hmm. And this was what they called Operation Homestead. And that's what they were doing. By 1993, they had successfully successfully reclaimed 300 units. Units. I don't know what that exactly means, but 300 units for people to live in, regardless. Mm -hmm. But in May of 1991, they occupied this place called Arian Court which I have a picture of from this woman's blog. Like, I couldn't find any information on it. I was kind of annoyed about how little information was on about this. Weird. How did you learn about it in the first place? I mean, I was just, I did some deep Googling. And I was like, I know Seattle has, what came out of this was the Low Income Housing Institute. Mm. Do you know them? You yeah. do? Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're the ones that run the tiny homes here in Seattle, which I think are not a solution to housing, by the way. I think. Is it, yeah, Lehigh? Low Income Housing Institute. Yeah, yeah. And and there was a takeover recently in one of those tiny homes. Do you remember that? No. Um, somebody bought out a tiny home village. And the whole point of the low housing, low income housing institute is to give the power to the people like supposedly they're a nonprofit. So I don't believe anything they're saying. It's like it's ran by the people that live there. Mm. It's it's occupied and like the rules are established or whatever kind of norms they're are established. self-governing yes. communities. Yeah. I like worked with one really briefly with like Coco and Leanne and, and it was they have to move every three months depending on where what kind of property they're occupying. Some can some can be there longer. But yeah, they seem to function well though i yeah absolutely agree that tiny homes are not a solution it's like we can't no you have ever no no you want to live in a tiny home like exactly i don't you and some people the answer is yes but not but not when okay the not most people the people that live in tiny homes usually have another home (laughs) right you know what i mean like they're like leaving the world behind to like go wander and, and like their business is like the aesthetic of their lives and so exactly it, and you don't need a lot of stuff plus it's like usually i don't know i call it cross a uh, cosplaying poverty it's like usually they're not actually like the like for example people that have to live in tiny homes here have to live in tiny homes mm-hmm. it's no other option for them versus i think a lot of other people are like what would it be like if i had less that's a dream you know right, right. anyways there's a distinct difference and this is coming from someone that did the whole van life well, yeah, it's like people who live in their cars because they don't have another option are like stigmatized and like kicked out of public space. Yeah. Uh, whereas, yeah, people who do it as like a hashtag lifestyle is like a very different right response. Very different. So Aryan Court was one of the things that they occupied and um, people got arrested. I saw like I read this literally this woman's blog about it. That's like what? The, and what year was this? This was like 1991. I wonder if we could like find people who'd been involved. I really thought about reaching out to the blog writer and being like, "Do you have any more?" Because she had like awesome photos. Like I think she's a photographer. She had, she had was talking about the 90s, early 90s from in Seattle for, through her lens. And like I found out so many cool shit, so much cool shit through literally her documenting and then just putting it on this like rinky dinky, obviously an older person's blog. You know what I mean? Um, wow. And I was like, this, the photography was cool. I th- I was like, she was, yeah, it was a different time. 
And yeah, it was became the first self-managed permanent housing project for previously homeless people in Washington State. It's pretty cool. I did read some reviews and this person made a really articulate, beautiful review being like, not to say this isn't for everyone, but I just had a really bad experience because there was constant pounding on my wall from my neighbor and I asked to get moved and they like wouldn't move me. And it was like through and I was like, that's not that's not what I would call self-managed if Mm -hmm. that's the case. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, so I mean, there's definitely still issues with how I think it's like once you become part of the institution, you can't ever really be self-managed in my belief. So Lee, so you're saying Lehigh came out of this group. That's how Lehigh started was this group of people who were. Yeah. uh, They're the ones that started to run the self, uh, a run, uh, Arion Court, and they called themselves the Low Income Housing Institute. Operation House Homestead. Mm. That's part of their history for sure. New York City. We're going across the country, which is like where a lot of activism of squatting happens. Mm -hmm. And I got really deep into, I want to buy all the books. Uh, especially of the 70s and 80s, because that was like when deep activism was happening with squatting and rights. And there's like a lot of cool art that came out of it. There's even a museum called the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Spaces, which we should visit in New York City. Oh, cool. And it's like in this affordable housing that they've now that they occupied for some time. And we could go visit. And it's like, I'd love to. Yeah. It's very like small and like obviously still punks run it like but (laughs) I think punks still like old punks still run the Instagram (laughs) because they need a little update. (laughs) But I read this article on it and it was just more kind of interviewing all these people, these like oral storytellers, all these like documentarians, all these writers, all these graphic novel writers too and designers of that time period and what it meant to be a squatter from the interviews they took part or like experienced and it was really amazing. It was through Urban Omnibus, mm-hmm. which is a New York City's like like a platform, a, a web page that people can go to to learn about urban planning in New York City. And it was she was the only time she wrote about this was because her book was coming out. I think her name is Amy Stercheski. She's an oral historian, former squatter, and an author of the recent book "Ours to Lose: When Squatters Become Homeowners in New York City." And she wrote this ar- article about squatting and spaces and the history of that. And I think it brings a lot more clarity to the play Rent. Hmm. Mm. Because they're constantly, I mean, I think that's like, this was, that was the 90s, but it kind of gives you, that's like Rent is like the fight that all these people were having. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, because Rent is like they, they're, are they squatting? They're squatting. Oh, wow. That is really cool. It's cool to think about squatting as like a form of action. Like I've been really thinking about it and I might start doing it. I think I should just I, I really want to start doing it with people. I mean, like we have so many homeless people like and we have options here. I don't know where I need to do a little more research. I know th- there's got to be a GSA, a GIS layer that's going to tell me something of like on like a vacant homes, maybe owned by the state. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't think there's homes. I think there's apartment buildings in downtown. Yeah, right. That's that would I, be a good place to target. I know. And I'm, I'm, anyways, so more to come soon, maybe like in the next five years. I don't know. I just really need to talk to somebody about it because I'm just like, why, why isn't this happening? Yeah. It's, we're like facing some issues, obviously. And in New York City, the 1980s and the 90s was home to squatting movement, unlike any other in the US, okay? Drawing on their diverse, radical, and progressive roots, 
Squatters claimed in uh, occupied city-owned abandoned buildings with a winning combo. I've heard. Okay, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I've just heard of like uh, a stories or a story in particular about, I think, probably New York at that time where there were like really contentious or drawn out court cases to decide how to move forward in cases where people had been squatting for yeah. years in buildings. Years. I mean, like people are still squatting and they're activist squatters. Like that's like their whole thing. It's just like they don't want to ever be a part of the institution or the rat race. They're literally like, no, I'm not even squatting to like make this into housing. I'm squatting as a right as a human to exist in space and not have to participate in the capitalist world. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also badass, and I I stand for it, and I really wish I had the boldness to be like God, that. God, yeah. Um, and anyways, uh, they have a winning combination of a yippee sense of drama and fun, and a punk rock aggression and subculture grit, and urban urban homesteaders' earnest appeals to American values of self sufficiency and initiative. Mm. So it's like this combo. People were making food and gathering. People would live in like a whole building. And there would be like a punk building. There would be like a hippie building. Wow. People would be drawing on the walls. Of course, there's a bunch of drugs. I mean, like it was anarchist in a lot of ways, but they like would live there for 10, 15 years without any cops coming. This is especially in the 70s and 80s because cops would never come into town unless to like drop a dead body off or like, Mm. I don't know, steal their drugs. (laughs) The space wasn't being policed. Like the city was not paying attention to that space whatsoever yeah this is especially in the lower east side when when i was reading i'm sure there's other parts of the new york city that were like this but the lower east side was especially like diverse low income just like grifters that were like artists that just squat like there was like a whole town of squatters and didn't trump have something to do with yes it's like are you getting are you gonna talk about it? i do not talk about it but... like he basically like made a deal with the city uh where he they would like give him property or like sell to him for like super super cheap if he could develop it into luxury stuff like he yeah because new york was like bankrupt he he was a speculator Mm. and that's what i'm getting to the core of is speculation land speculation is pretty much the reason we are in the situation that we are in it's because people hold on to land uh because it's cheap and then decide when to either sell it or build it up and basically gentrification gentrification but also like out renting people of the area and like creating a lot of issues and this is an example of that so when faced with eviction they learned how to build barricades and booby traps and drum up riots okay home alone i I know right (laughs) (laughs) i love the idea maybe home alone got some uh, ideas from them i mean that kid knew violence oh my god he was sinister truly he just sat at home thought of ways to like kill these guys i think at one point like an iron goes on their face or something insane it's like you don't have to do all that unless you're a cop which i think is what they did they didn't do this to normal people each attempt to evict lower east side squatters from the late 80s on brought on brought nearly escalated police and squatter tactics by the mid-1990s the police were using tanks and helicopters and the squatters were burning cars in the streets oh my god and the one of the graphic novelists his graphic novel is called war of our town or like war in the streets or something and it's about this era of just like how tense it was and like how people were just fight for what for why like i mean not on the squatter side but like more on the police side it's like what are you fighting for? Mm. What do you, what do you, what are you mad that they aren't paying money? Like, I'm very confused on like the righteousness of cops in general. Just like, yeah, I mean, they literally exist to protect pr- property. Yeah, but I'm like, it doesn't, 
I don't know. Doesn't that sound less fun? Yeah, <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Right. Like, in 2002, after three years of secret negotiations, the city shocked and everyone involved when it agreed to sell the remaining squatted buildings for $1 each to a nonprofit called the Urban Homestead As- Assistance Board, which would take out loans on the squatter's behalf to renovate the buildings and bring them up to code. Okay. So the former squatters, I mean, I think that's an ideal situation. It's like a pro and a con, you know, like you're tied up in these people that live there now, like you, uh, as an institution, you kind of have to like, it's not so anarchist. Right. Um, And there's like issues that come with that. Like it's kind of weeding out the people to see if they were, would get a job or not too. Like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's really deciding, like making squatters and people that squat, uh, for the reason of like they think it's the way to live in urban spaces and really just trying to like transform that narrative they're basically because like the financial difference to the city is none whether they just give it to the squatters or whether they give it to this nonprofit. but they were like it has to be given to a nonprofit because we you have to like agree to live within this system and like right yeah I mean, it did have to be met up to code. There were probably safety mm, issues. Right, and right. like, I know the squatters weren't going to pay for it. Like, you right. know, like they weren't going to be for it. But they did like, they were part of the the nonprofit. Like some of the squatters were taking an initiative to like make sure that the, these things were met. And all of these buildings were converted into like limited equity, low income co- cooperatives and renovation loans would become mortgages was the intention. Again, you're starting to become a part of the institution, which is a pro in some ways if the institution is, I, I don't want to go deep down this the whole like it but it is a, a, a squatting can be a route to home owning is what I'm getting to uh-huh. is that a good thing or a bad thing uh, we can talk about it off air okay <laughs> this was easier said than done because, when they were doing this transition because like a lot of these squatters like situation were illegal and they transformed them into uh, like indebted homeowners like mm. right that's what i'm that's what i'm saying it's like <laughs> that's what you're saying I, that's what was my cons- that was this cons- i was like okay so now they have debt this was um easier said but than done by 2013 only 11 or only five out of the 11 buildings in this legal process had been converted into co-ops mm. so i don't know where they are now but it's a slow slow climb honestly half ain't bad that's what i say hot take f is passing <laughs> 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 they're trying half is what yeah 50 percent. that's I think straight up f is yeah it? right yeah i guess yeah depending on how you grade okay amy the writer said in closing two concrete lessons we can learn from the history of uh lower east side is direct action gets the goods physically and claiming and holding space is powerful tactic mm. especially when you can make successful moral claims on its public sphere the market, second one, the market, even the constrained market of the low-income limited equity co-op will not provide housing to the most vulnerable among us. To have a vibrant city, we need a robust robust non-market solution like social housing and community land trust. And I try to go deeper into the history of the South Lower East Side. And I there's like a few docs that I tried to get into and they would have web pages and they would have all these things and they would have Amazon links and be unavailable on Amazon, be unavailable on iTunes. I would try to get a DVD unavailable. And I'm like, so the history is being completely lost, especially this part of the history, which mm. I think is epic mm-hmm. and scary. I mean, there's a lot of oral historians. There's a lot of things that are happening, but the accessibility to them is really hard. So yeah. like people don't even know the like cool like, – because I was watching just the trailers and I was like, this is incredible. I mean, looks really hard. looks – 
a little scary. <laughs> there was definitely a lot of heavy drug use. There was people in the streets dying. Damn. I mean, definitely all that. But there was a thriving art community. There was a sense of adventure. There was there was like conversations happening that were probably not happening anywhere else in the in the U.S. at that time. Like there's it, it just seems like something I would be attracted to personally. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes. It's like you feel like you're romanticizing a struggle. Like I felt that way watching Nan Golden, the, the kind of like documentary about her life. And like so much of it was like, yeah, they're artists and they're like doing something that's like truly interesting. But they're also like actually really struggling and doing a ton of drugs or whatever. But I mean, progress is struggle. Like... Totally. I think it's not even me romanticizing it because they also had their own race com- com- like issues and their own classism issues and all that within their own small weird world. I think it's more like the fact that they were all fighting for to live this space as freaks and weirdos and like yeah. not having not abiding to whatever the mainstream. They're not concept. upholding yeah white supremacy and it's like yeah that those spaces aren't always gonna be clean or even functional like or you right. know like even healthy like yeah. they, they can still be a lot of things but like they are yeah also doing standing up for something there's also a lot of opportunity for weird art to be placed like that's why people move to these kind of things is because like of the there was just art about in the urban space that just people made for other people for no other reason Okay, so now we're going on to our third part. That was direct action. And I was thinking, yeah, like we were just talking about how affordable housing is being built, but there's like other things that have to happen beforehand. Do you know what I'm about to say? Um, no. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Does Henry George ring any? Oh, right, 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 right. We're talking Georgism, people. We're talking Georgism. 3.30. I know. I'm, I was tablescaping in my head there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> the, there's this concept that a lot of white boy urbanists now know. I would say either they're a hardcore democratic socialist or a libertarian. And this is like one thing that they both believe in. And that's why and they all hang out and talk to each other about it. Mm-hmm. Truly. They're very passionate about this. This is a new thing, but it's an old thing. And they're like, literally, it's just... I can't even explain. It's just like I told my friend Carter about it and he was like, he started freaking out because he didn't know about it. And then he was like, and I was like, no, it's his whole personality. I wouldn't say his whole personality. It's definitely like, thanks for bringing this to me. And I was like, well, he's an assessor too. So I thought maybe he would know. Definitely. Yeah, but he didn't. But now he does. This thing called land value tax. And there's this belief, and I, I believe it too, that taxes are an economic tool that determines human behavior. 
And we see that being utilized in like, I don't know, soda taxes and like cigarette taxes. It's to decline the necessary like inclination to be a cigarette smoker or a soda drinker and like improve overall health for and the well-being of uh, Americans. So you're pro-soda tax. Sure. Yeah. I'm actually not pro-tax right now, even though I am hypothetically, I'm for like putting it back into the community, yeah. but like our taxes are going to a genocide. So bad, bad place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm not really for it. Yeah. And Henry George was one of, he wasn't the guy that invented this concept of land value tax, but he was definitely like a, the, the guy that like made it popular. And he was like mid 1800s to turn of the century. Okay. Side note about Henry George. What, how do you feel about people with two first names? Do you have uh, any opinion about them? Neutral, yeah. <laughs> I was like trying to conjure something up, but <laughs> um, they sound a bit goofy, about a bit whimsical. Yeah. But maybe I'm thinking, because I'm, yeah, I don't know. What are you thinking? Boy George, which isn't two first names. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I love that name. Okay, so land value tax is a belief in, in that Henry George popularized and it started, it became called Georgism. And something about that is... He became quite a cult leader, I would say, because of it. But something that Georgists really believe, hardcore Georgists, as, as they would call themselves, would believe only in one tax, like no more other tax except for the land value tax. And I'm going to try to explain land value tax to my best of my benefit here. I practiced with my friend Rye, but you guys. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I read I read a whole piece on it recently because my like my boss sent it to us. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, because, you know, we think a lot about housing at my job. Uh, That's what I'm saying. It's like it's coming. It's becoming very popular. I'm sure it connected because I'm about to talk about it. Detroit. Uh-huh. Did they talk about Detroit? I don't remember. And that's the thing. I read. So I read this piece and I, I don't know, understand what Georgism is. <laughs> I mean. Like a vaguely I do. But if I was to try to explain it to someone, I would be like, duh. Well, what it is to do, what it's trying to do is to deteriorate speculative land grabbing, which is what we're seeing happen on a grand scheme on, on an, in various cities, right? And there is, why is there so much wealth in a lot of these cities, but so much poverty happening at the same time? It's literally because of land speculation. Mm. People are priced out of housing, but they still exist in the city. I just, white men suck because they really make sure to make it hard to talk about because I was like, not one article, all written by men. Not one article made it sound fun or interesting to me, mm. except for the one where I found out that Lizzie, Mag- what's her name? Lizzie Maggie made Monopoly through mm. her deep, devout belief of Georgism being the thing. So she made a game called the Lord La- Landlord's Game and um, eventually was stolen by some guy, unemployed dude, that was like, I'm going to take this game and paid her like $500 and made Monopoly out of it. Okay. Is Monopoly Georgism? No. That's where I got really confused. I was like, okay, no one, I had to go into a deep dive. Why? I was like, everyone was just like, yeah, that game, Landlord's Game, became Monopoly. I was like, Monopoly is the opposite of Georgism. We're trying to get rid of speculative land owning. Monopoly is literally about speculative land owning. <laughs> so I was like very confused on like the fact that we kept on saying this was a game based off her and belief so what system. what was Lizzie's game? Lizzie had, it was called the Landlord Game. It is very similar. It's, it's, it looks just like the Monopoly that we have. It said go to jail on it, all that stuff. 
But she had she had written two rule sets, one that was like focused on the million value tax and the belief of Georgism and sharing that information, which was about it was probably less fun because it's like about sharing. Uh-huh. And yeah, I was just trying to think of like, how would you make a game like that fun <laughs> if I'm if I'm not mad? Like, yeah, you, there, if you're not competing and having a little like, fuck you, right. there's not a lot of fun to that. Right. Yeah. At this point, we should just be dancing, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then there's Monopoly, the version of Monopoly that you played. So it was like obviously showing what was happening in our current day society. It was a reflection of our current society. So she gave like two options to the players, but the her version of Georgism got cut out. And I had to go deep diving for that because no one was explaining mm. how that was connected. And I was like, these it's because a woman isn't, because no one's asking the questions. Everything that men say, they just believe. And I was like, when I would talk to any of my friends, they'd be like, okay, and mostly AFAB, uh, assigned female at birth, they would all be like, okay, but how is Monopoly connected to Georgism? I was like, good question. Why is no one writing about that? Mm. I was annoyed because mm-hmm. they don't, they make it hard to figure out why we we're trying to be pro. I don't know why I'm so mad about this, but I'm just like, it was so hard to figure out land value tax. And then when Monopoly was thrown in there, which was interesting, I was extra confused right, about it. Right, because Monopoly is the opposite. So with Georgism, <laughs> the, like the, so the idea is that you only get taxed on land you own. <clears throat> no. Okay. Well, no. Um, okay. So it's it's not on the pr- it's not accessing the property of like when in, the land is the value of the lands. Like if there is water and like um, mm. like public benefits to the land, the value goes up. So there's a higher tax. Right. But say there's a high rise next uh on a piece of land and then right next to the piece of land is a band there's nothing on it they'd still have the same value okay so the intent the intent isn't to be speculative but like what would buyers want to do was to provide more usability to their lots to gain more money like to have uh i don't know more money i guess in the end of the day you're saying that because they improving the land improves the value and so it's connected to the land yeah it's not to discourage building that's the intent you know like you have a higher property tax when you put work into your building Mm. when you build things that are beneficial or make things nicer (laughs) and put money into it you know that your value of your home is going to increase with the property tax but also like it's going to be more sellable essentially and like mm-hmm. it's not for increased use of the space it's just literally to profit and and also make it harder for people to buy into these properties so then what so under georgism what what would you do to improve the value of your land a lot of the idea is like public infrastructure which would be public fun public funded would benefit their land but to make anything a, a land beneficial, I, I mean, I, I think it's more about the placement was what they really were talking about. The location of, of the land is where the value comes in. Uh-huh. And then closer to a city, I'm sure the higher the land value is. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to also help agriculture, land. And don't ask me details, okay? This is when I get really, I'm like, how? Mm. I don't know because it's valuable. But like at the same time, but some people argue that it's not going to help farmers. Anyways. Right. Because arable land. That's what I was just going to ask. Because like arable land seemed like it would be expensive. Because yeah. it's high value. Yeah. It but- also seems to me that there'd be a problematic clustering of wealth based even more so on location. But they're already doing that. I mean, definitely. And it's like a 10 times worse. Right. And right. Th- but what, would this, what would this do is literally uh, not 
cause people to to sit on a piece of land because mm-hmm. it's not going to benefit them to just sit on it because mm-hmm. they're going to have to pay high land use taxes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what they were probably going to do is build on it and probably build like livable spaces for people to and it's supposed to decrease rent at, like and decrease like all like lands and keep oh, housing man. at a level like that's start, the intent like a georgist club for femmes non-binaries <laughs> just like not, you know like so how, how do we make georgist george more accessible bimbofication i truly truly because it's like not it's like planner dudes that are like they talk planner and if you ever talk to a planner dude it's like a different language oh god yeah and an example of this happening of like the actual because like this is an idea that henry george like again popularized he even had his own little city and or that was broken up to like three villages but and they all live on a land trust and the property is like rented out to or leased out to people mm-hmm. so it's like a collective ownership and no one really owns the land and that's that kind of idea okay generally that's the idea we're not saying that's like what it has to be, but like if we lived in the version of Henry George, that's what we want. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so Detroit is doing this and pushing. Oh, right, right. Okay, now it's ringing a bell. Detroit. Was it in the article you read? Or yeah. Okay, yeah. I was gonna say I was like, there's no reason you no, can't I- talk about Georgism right now without talking about exactly. This. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I was like, the only reason it probably came up was because of it. Detroit. Okay. So as we know, Detroit's going through some shit right now with the closure of a lot of like car, not dealerships, but you know, factories there. A lot of people lost their livelihood. A lot of people, that means like a lot of people had to leave their housing. And of course, COVID, I feel like if you're a lot of places were significantly affected by COVID. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, not, it's not great. And then, so the mayor of Detroit, who's a Democrat in his third succession, he's turning to the land value tax. The interviewer of this article was asked him if he'd ever heard of Henry George. And he was like, who? Dude, and I, yeah, I love that. He's like, it's it's convergent evolution. It's like two species arriving at the same conclusion. Like, you know, like, yeah. Well, apparently one of the advisors who's like now going to graduate school at MIT and as a planner had told him about it. Like that was like, he probably was like, no, I said Georgism. But no, the mayor was like, who's George? I don't care. No, the guy was like, I didn't bring up Henry George because there's no point to bring up Henry George, which is true. It's like, yeah, we're just trying to find solutions. Right. I'm not going to give you the history breakdown. Totally. God, the restraint I do not have. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I don't need to go off base here. God, if I could, if I could start a make a point without having to give all the details <laughs> what's that like i did th- i was like i did i did think it was funny though the, the the like it's like so like so many people are into henry george right now and georgism like is coming back and like the mayor had it's like everybody's watching detroit because of the land wow. value attacks and he had no idea that henry george was even a person i love that <laughs> And when he was told about it, like the interviewer was like, blah, 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 like gave him an explanation. His response was, this isn't a, any deep ph- philosophical movement. OK, he's like, I'm trying to just cut taxes. I love that. It's like, well, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a whole. I, I mean, I just feel like white guys love to make things seem so complicated <laughs> and smart. And it's like you it doesn't have to be all that. I think this guy is a white guy. He's he's giving dad vibes if anything. Like dad vibes that's like got a lot of like energy of not being interested in the philosophical parts mm-hmm. of things, you know what I mean? Oh my god, that is such a vibe. <laughs> he's just like, "Shh, how do I cut my taxes?" <laughs> yeah. Georgism again, a little background, it started to fade in the 1920s. Mr. Dungans, which is his name, Detroit dude, proposal while long away from the full-blown Georgism, like I said, one tax belief 
represents something the movement hasn't had much of, the hope of a real world victory and a chance to show how land value tax can solve an actual problem, mm. in this case, blight. The mayor of Detroit refers to vacant properties as a lottery tickets. They can be bought for a little and held for a little. Some lots have taxes as low as $30 per year, but have a huge potential payoff, usually because someone else wants to invest. Problems like this are what helps spur interest in new tax scheme. But when the mayor says land tax, he means encouraging growth on empty parcels and a tax cut for homeowners. And that's something to consider. And versus there's this other guy, this engineer in Silicon Valley called Mark Maloney. Maloney? And he says land tax, his point is about the 30 million bungalows in Palo Alto and his wish in that they could be replaced with denser housing or at least have had have higher taxes. In other words, in a depressed city, homeowners are victims and rich ones, they're the enemy. So yeah, let's keep our eyes and ears out for Detroit. And we'll we'll check back in later on. Dude. (laughs) Those are the three dreams. I feel so inspired. I feel like, I don't know, I was just... I just had my year-end review and of course it's me so it's gonna be like fucking all over the place where like at one point I told Leslie that like she ruined me if I left framework I just have to join the circus basically being like urban design jobs fucking suck but like she my job is really awesome and she like teared up it's like no one it's like hilarious (laughs) yeah anyway there's a lot I will say there's a lot of uh private firms that are very interesting in the planning world, I think because they have the bil- ability to dream. There's a lot of creativity that could be allowed. There's yeah. a lot of... Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, landscape architecture Architecture really is like the way more toxic work environment, but I don't know. There's tons of stuff that we ha- could do. Yeah. I mean, I really want to occupy occupy homes. I would love to push for land value tax. Um, I would love to... What I would love with the land value tax is bimbo fire. I feel mm. like you and I do make need to make like, you know, the burn book of Mean Girls? Mm. Make a version, like a pamphlet version of that, like, or not pamphlet, a zine version of that mm-hmm. called land, like the land value tax burn book or something. I don't know. Something like yeah. make it glittery and yeah. like stupid and... Yeah. Land value tax for bimbos. Yeah. Um, Just because I do feel like it is occupied mainly with white men. The person that told me about it was a white dorky dude that also told me about the power broker dude i really love this idea actually like something that looks very beautiful and like eye-catching and then it's like a explainer on land land value tax tax. and then like yeah and i feel like the people that are actually asking questions to make i'm like make it make sense because like i feel like they're just saying things they're not there's no like no follow-up on how like how is this not going to create gentrification like can people explain a little bit more deeper about the details of this because i feel Mm. like there's an idea but the and a hope but i'm not i'm like is there a guarantee like which I think there is, but I want people to explain it a little bit deeper for me. Dude, do you think if we wrote a book together, we'd kill each other? <laughs> I mean, I don't, as long as we're not doing each other's editing, why would it be hard, you know? Yeah, you don't like that kind of editing. I really like trading things and editing oh, graphics. Yeah. Like, I found that really. Well, I think it, I would like to have an editor and we could still have that experience. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just feel like so, I really, next year, I'm focused on making art and f- for me, that'll include a lot of like maps and digital art mm-hmm. and like diagrammatic art and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I just like really I'm like so many of these things we've talked about this season and, and, and on fascism, I like really want to go deeper. And you mean on avant gossip? Yeah. You said fascism. How dare you? No, I said this season on avant gossip. I meant this season on avant gossip. You said fascism. And last season on fascism. Oh, like I'm basically saying our whole body of work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to like 
interact with it in a different way. Totally. I mean, I definitely want to do, I don't have GIS and because it's expensive and my work hasn't given it to me yet. Do you have GIS? Mm -hmm. You should use it. Do you have pro? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, sweet. Yeah, that's what I was like using to do the Denny Blaine. I'm so jealous. Um, I definitely might want to borrow that if that's possible because I definitely want to look for housing that like I just there's definitely a Seattle like layer Mm. that is going to tell me exactly what I needed to see. Like I know there is because I talked to a couple. That would be so surprising. Like I I would think there'd be a risk in showing vacant homes or like home yeah i don't think there would be i'm sure there no i would think there would be a risk like in that yeah but they might still do they have to i think if they own if they if the public if our city actually owns them they have to show that they own them oh for the city owned but i mean i don't know there's got to be another layer too but there's definitely some city owned shit that's being not utilized i'm sure of it well i was thinking about i did a mapping of electrical substations and i mapped which ones were defunct which ones were got turned into other things or whatever but the city there's been dozens of electrical substations that have been commissioned and decommissioned over the years and the city owns the land and so there have been people who have said like the city should like do something with this land Mm -hmm. and so i would also i want to like revisit that and look at like those sites and what could be done with that i love it what what i mean this is all in theory, you guys. Don't don't hold us to it, okay? Yeah. We have a lot going on, okay? Do, do not hold your breath, but... Uh, <laughs> this might be like three, five years, or maybe never. But listen, we have some ideas. We are nothing if not full of manic energy exactly. and Exactly, and passion. Yeah. And we lack the funds to do it. So that's why you got to give us five stars. Because somehow that becomes money. Right, yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay, Anyways, love I love you too. Bye. Bye.